What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Explore. <laughs> what the fuck are we? <laughs> hey, what's up, guys? Welcome back to the Consciousness Explorers podcast, the pod that's all about mind-body adventuring. Every episode, we experiment with a different mind-body technique from meditation to psychotherapy, energy to art, dreaming, waking, and everything in between. What do they tell us about who we are, where we can go, and who we can become? So we're your hosts. I'm Tasha Schumann. And we got Jeff Warren, and we're super stoked to have you along for the ride. Nice. So today we're talking to Eric Davis. Eric's one of those thinkers who really defies easy categories. In fact, he would probably really uh, appreciate that I said that because he's all about crossing boundaries and academic disciplines and even spiritual traditions. I guess if you had to summarize it, you might say he's a scholar of the culture of consciousness, the whole multidisciplinary world of mind and reality and practice. His latest book, High Weirdness, tracks the emergence of a kind of psychedelic spirituality in 70s California. So I met Eric for the first time about 15 years ago. I've been following his various interests and writing since then, and was very interested to see that he started something called the Psychedelic Sangha in San Francisco a couple of years ago. And that actually ends up being a big part of what we get into in this talk. We get into psychedelics as a practice and a path, the sort of style of learning that emerges through long-term engagement with these plants and these medicines. Yes. And I personally loved the practice that Eric led us on. It was super centering and immediate, felt a lot like Zen or Dzogchen, but in a way that I have never encountered before, made the present moment feel really alive with potential. So that was my favorite part of this talk. Plus, his guided meditation voice is super cool. <laughs> so good. <laughs> he sounds like the dude. He does. Okay, so here's the show. Eric, welcome to the Consciousness Explorers Club podcast. Happy to be here. So right away, Eric, you can kind of maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and for any listeners who may not know you. Yeah, I've been uh, predominantly a, a writer and kind of a cultural critic and historian about the counterculture, about technology, and about alternative religion for, you know, pretty much over 30 years now. So I've written a number of books uh, on different facets of that already widely spread field. Uh, for 10 years, I did a podcast called Expanding Mind which may come back in some form as part of my uh, latest project, which is called The Burning Shore, which is an online uh, substack publication that's sort of looking at issues of consciousness and culture from a, a California perspective, because I'm, I'm very much informed by my sort of California frame when it comes to these, um, to these topics. And uh, recently, in the last couple of years, I've been part of a group called the Psychedelic Sangha. And in that capacity, have started doing monthly gatherings under that name as part of the San Francisco Dharma Collective. And we've been continuing to do them online. And in that capacity, I've, I've started to present more of my own experience with meditation. I'm a 30-year meditation guy. And and so that's been very interesting for me to kind of come out and try to uh, share with folks my own practices and approaches. And the practice I'm going to share today is something that's kind of come out of some of those concerns over the last couple of years. I'm very excited to talk a little bit about that Venn diagram between uh, meditation and psychedelics. Uh, but maybe as before we do that, 
can you tell us a little bit about this practice you're going to guide us in, a little, whatever context you think we need to know, and then we'll let you basically take it away. Sure. I'll just I'll set it up with a with a story, and then I'll go into I think more. There's more to say about it uh, after we do it. Awesome. And the story was I was at the Green Gulch Zen Center in the early 2000s on a retreat, and there was an older a senior student was part of leading the retreat and I hadn't met him before. And, and I, I didn't like him, to be frank. He had this, this <laughs> sort of like pompous arrogance that that seems to um, appear regularly in, in Zen, American Zen anyway. And uh, he, you know, he was very proud. And, and so I found him kind of irritating. And when he gave his talk, I thought, okay, this is going to be annoying. But it was actually one of the most, um, not profound in the sense of like metaphysically wild or or, you know, super far out, but one of the most lasting talks I had ever heard in terms of it actually shifting some fundamental sense about how to think about what we're doing in meditation, yeah. particularly in the framework of how long have these practices been around humans or how long have humans been around them. And I'll just say one thing about what he talked about. He just talked about, he said, look, you know, imagine for the vast majority of the life of human beings on this planet, we were cruising around in small bands of being hunter-gatherers. And, you know, if you're on the savanna and folks are cooking and the kids are running around and people are getting ready for the morning or the evening, you know, someone's got to be watching. Someone's got to keep watch. There's a lot of big animals out there, big animals back in the day you know, uh -huh. woolly mastodons and saber-toothed tigers and stuff like that. You know, we forget that human beings lived alongside these seemingly mythical creatures. And so he just talked about, well, what what is your mind if you're that person yeah. without any distraction, without any sense of a difference between human interiority and nature you know there's no like inside you don't have like a, you know you might stay in a cave for a while but there's not a sense of like a structure that has an interior that's separate than nature you know and so there you are what is your mind and that was the kind of question he you know unfolded it further and it's always stayed with me as a really beautiful way of framing something very basic but also I think in some subtle ways we can talk about different than a lot of the ways that we approach kind of open awareness within meditation. Yeah, it's so rooted, whereas a lot of the time open awareness kind of gets really lofty and couched mm -hmm. in like academic speak. Absolutely. Well, I want to know what he said. What is the mind? Well, he talked about um, what are you doing? You're watching. You're attending you are open to any possible shift or sign or sound or scent or ripple. So it's not about blanking out. If you're blanking out, you're blowing it. If you're thinking distracted thoughts about, you know, the hot cave lady next door, that you're also blowing it. So, and, and it was just this sense of a very simple, basic, open awareness that is focused, and this is where I think it's different than a lot of practices, on the outside. It's focused mm -hmm. out, but not in a grabbing, identifying way. Initially, you might have to identify. Oh, that's a saber-toothed tiger. Oh, that's the wind. 
you know, shaking the bush. But it's the poised mind before that that I'm interested in. All right, man. Well, take us there. All right. Well, as always, uh, settle into your seat. Take a few deep breaths. Hmm. And partly because I am a Zen guy, I'm into the posture. And so if you're sitting in a chair, you know, if you can try to sit away from the back of the chair a little bit, if if it's possible, if not, no big deal. But what you really want to sense is a, a kind of structured calm in the spine, a sense of being upright as if you're balancing your spine on top of your pelvis, like a stack of plates that a waiter might carry through the chaos of a restaurant. And one way of encouraging this uprightness is to imagine a string tied to the front of your chest, right in front of your heart or more in the middle, and that it's slightly tugging forward. So your shoulder blades naturally roll back, and there's a sense of elevation in the rib cage and and an openness of the heart. This helps hold the posture, but it also is a kind of physical manifestation of an open, awake heart. And similarly, you can imagine a string tied to the very top of your skull. And again, slightly tugging up so that the back of your head flattens out a bit and your chin naturally tucks in, just a tad. And between these two and the sense of settling into your spine as a kind of relaxed but alert state, that should keep you going. So again, let's just breathe naturally, allowing a certain slowness, certain depth to enter in, but not forcing it. Notice if your mind is already stirred up, thoughts, sensations, distracting feelings, and just allow them to kind of ride the exhale of your breath out so that as you inhale and then exhale, you can take those distracting feelings or buzzing energies and just allow them to sort of exit through the gesture of the exhale. It's like at the end of the exhale, as you finally reach 
the sort of relaxed diaphragm, you're opening your hand and all the stresses and distractions are flying off like butterflies. So now I'm going to lead you through some images, a, a guided meditation. And don't worry about visualizing. If you visualize, great. If you remember from your past similar experiences, great. If you don't, no problem. It's really about the cultivating the feelings associated with the, the stories and images. So you're passing through a, a dense but manageable forest. There's no real path. You're making the path as you go along, but there's enough room for you to slide between the, sh the trees and move past the bushes elegantly, slowly, as a walking meditation. It's, it's dense, so the leaves brush your face and branches cling momentarily to your arms as you pass through. And you can use this again as a way to handle any distracting thoughts or sensations that arise. It's almost like that's the, the brush you're in, the the clinging vines of ordinary mind that you're you know recognizing as they touch you but you let them go as you go deeper deeper into the forest ahead you can you know see a little bit of light ahead it's increasing maybe that's associated with a kind of calm or focus that's developing inside your mind stream. And so you move slowly but carefully towards the light. Maybe you hear the crackle of the brush that you're walking through, leaves distant birds. And here you come to the edge of the part of the forest you're in. And you walk into the light and you stop. And before you is a large clearing still surrounded on all sides by the larger forest, but opening out to a space of expansion and calm. You enjoy the light pouring in after passing through the shade of the forest. And you hear movement behind the trees, behind the bushes, all throughout the space. 
the forest, you remember, is animated with others, beasts and birds, who knows what. So here you rest at the edge of the clearing between the forest and the open space and you wait, ready for what may come. Don't think about what is behind that sound or imagine what might be there. Simply clear your mind and attend. Not so much to your own breathing or your own sense of energy, but to this open space and its possibilities the inevitable emergence of something you weren't prepared for, something to encounter. Attentive, aware, but also with a certain poise, as if you're leaning ever so slightly into the moment's possibility, waiting patiently for something to arise. What comes up? Is it just your imagination, just another thought? Or does something want to be encountered and seen? The more quiet you are, the less involved you are with what you want or fear, the more fully the being or phenomenon will unfold before you. So what comes up? If nothing comes up, or it's just your run-of-the-mill thoughts and feelings, that's okay. You are simply waiting and attending. This is the clearing. It's a space of clarity and attention 
a sensitivity to what is outside over the broilings of the within. If you connect with this space, you can return here anytime in any meditation or far out experience or ordinary crazy day. There's a way to sit or stand upright, attentive, with poise, and attend to what may come. If you've been following your uh, feelings more than the images, see if you can conjure up the image again. There's you standing or sitting, as it may be. The forest of thick thoughts and scratchy leaves behind you. And this large clearing in front of you full of light and air, surrounded by the further forest. And here is the place that you wait. And now what I'm going to ask you to do as we close this space, which of course is a very pleasant place to linger, It's also an invitation to meld this kind of space with the world outside. It's a great thing to do in a park or at the beach or in the mountains. But now, wherever you are, I want you to connect with that sense, the visuals if you'd like, or at least the feeling of the clearing. one last time and then ever so slowly open your eyes and as much as you are able remain in that mind frame remain in that clearing as you encounter the ordinary objects and familiar spaces that you're in and i'll just let you rest there for a moment and now hearing my voice in this familiar space rather than ringing a bell I'll let the uh, tendrils of the experience linger as uh, we turn back to more ordinary discourse. And uh, thanks for your attention.
I love that one. Mm. Wow, there's a lot in that one. Tasha, you want to uh, kick it off? Or... Um, I'm happy to as well. If you yeah, go for it. More. Go for it. Yeah. You want to combobulate? I'm going to combobulate. Combobulate a, <laughs> a bit more. Yeah, please. Um, well, first of all, that was a great practice. Very interesting and really interesting to use the imagination. You know, it's so underused and so much meditation practice. Although, of course, it's always operating. Um, I'll just say very quickly, you've got a wonderful meditation guide voice, so very sort of sonorous. Oh, yeah, it's the best voice. So it really took me right away. And there's that kind of transmission part of the practice where you just sort of, you're kind of into the slipstream of what feels like the guide's own pacing. And um, right away getting into that sense of the trees around and really happy to be able to use my imagination, actually. I felt this little bit of like illicit happiness you know it's sort of like the yeah, the, the dirty secret of the meditator oh <laughs> shit you mean i get to use my imagination <laughs> so that feeling and then of course and it worked for just the the thoughts kind of coming up as the tendrils and as i approached the big open space the sense of a kind of a i liked how you put it it could be whatever you said it could be calm it could be focus for me it felt very this sort of concentrated focus and as it opened up uh, a real feeling of very strong kind of being very present and available. And what I found interesting was that your language is really interesting because you weren't saying notice thoughts or images that came up, although they could have come up. Uh, you were saying what comes outside, but it wasn't, there was no, you know, it, what, there was no prompt to notice to interpret that as sounds or actual things in my sensory environment. So what it did was actually, it was very similar to other practices I've done that are more kind of almost a Zogchen type practice where mm -hmm. I just found myself in this open, like I was hearing out, feeling mm -hmm. out without object, just mm -hmm. in this open availability where I didn't put a word on what would, and a, and a few images would come up and things, but mostly it was just the sense of, um, of kind of humble availability to the mystery, <laughs> to something that was beyond myself. I couldn't, I had no sense of it. It wasn't any, you know, there was no content to this visionary experience. <laughs> it was very small V, but there was just a sense of being open outward. Um, and I thought you really put us there nicely. And that, that was my experience. So I, I did have questions around it, but I, I'll let uh, Tasha share hers. And I, I'm, I mean, I think my thing I'm most curious about is what, you experience and what some of the reports are you hear from people when you guide them in that but i'll let tasha take yeah. over here i had a lot of the same feelings as you jeff i'm i like that you brought up zogchen because in my mind while i was going through the visualization i opened in the clearing and for me the clearing was a lake i couldn't make it be anything but a lake but i thought <laughs> i thought maybe that's because i'm canadian and every <laughs> here the outside of every forest ends up in a lake so there's no clearance yeah. i couldn't couldn't bring that one but um that's outside the point but i i think in my mind i i came upon the lake and then everything you were saying and i was like this is a zogchen meditation <laughs> but of course then and zogchen and open awareness it's all words for the same thing of kind of arriving subject and objectless at a space and with something that really I loved about this meditation that's maybe done this or put it into words better than I've ever heard it before is that, you know, I, I talk a lot with 
other teachers and practitioners about the idea of, you know, emptiness or impermanence and the interconnectedness of things. And a lot of people experience it as this like sad thing or like this like dead space, you know, they're like the more that they open up, it's like, oh, the, it, there's like this disconnection from life or the, that that you have to feel like, I don't know, almost like the the deadness of the void of space or something. And so the teachers that I love the best, you know, La Molina always says, stop thinking it's not a it's not a big dead old nothing. It's this space that's alive. It's full of energy and potential. And other teachers, you know, in, in the yoga tradition will talk about it as uh, bliss. You know, the space is alive with bliss. Um, and that you totally brought that for me. There was this like alive anticipation or kind of this waiting um, that had a lot in common with like just childlike wonder, you know, that, that feeling that you have when you're a kid, that's like anything could happen today, you know? And <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah. So for me, it was just, it was a really blissful, peaceful practice of like waiting for nothing in particular and not even really like waiting. I think you said leaning in, which is absolutely how it felt for me. So I loved it. Yeah. Well, this was great. Uh, just to get this feedback because you guys are so articulate and you, you've done so many different kinds of practices and you take this stuff, you know, really seriously. And when I've done this before for people, you know, I usually don't sort of get the full, the full story as much, you know, people <laughs> might mention a thing or two. So it's, it's, I'm very heartened to hear that a lot of these were my motivations. Um, one of the reasons I did this, I, I, one of the places I did is is in the context of psychedelic sangha is we did a a walk in prospect park in in brooklyn and it was a a cannabis walk and cannabis is a very interesting psychoactive to work with can be psychedelic can just be a way of checking out it it, it it's a very two-edged sword but the part of it that really interested me uh, and interested me in that that day in particular was the way it can tune you into your surroundings, particularly your nat the natural surroundings, in a way that is both uh, sensually very articulated, like you're very aware of the particular shapes and sounds and smells. You're you're really tied into the moment because. One of the features of cannabis is that it kind of cuts out a lot of short-term memory. So you're not just like constantly searching for some template or mm -hmm. reminder of what's going on if you're in the right frame or in, in, as one part of it. So you can really tune into what's happening around you sen sensually. But there's also this additional sense of, of enchantment or, or childlike wonder. And that's part of it. You can also like get super scattered and, you know, get caught up in thought and uh, kind of miss what's going on around you. It has that capacity too. As I said, it's, it's a particularly um, squirrely one. Uh, but I was really trying to kind of focus on that aspect of it. And so I, I the, the whole allowance for imagination or, or that and that quality of enchantment um, is definitely part of the picture because I think, like you say, there's it, there's there's too little of that in people sitting. Um, there's this kind of sense of a kind of dryness or a sort of asceticism or mm -hmm. like a uh, you know it's just emptying out and letting go and dropping and and deconstructing and all that. But uh, my experience of it and and it might be partly from also being a 
psychedelic user and a cannabis user uh, in a spiritual way, or if you want to call it that, that I feel no need to let go of a quality of enchantment. It's just I'm interested in refining it away from the major mythopoetics of, you know, an, an ayahuasca journey where it's, you're just assaulted by all these creatures and dimensions, <laughs> which is wonderful, but it's not quite Sometimes. here what, what I'm going for. And, yeah. and, and I think in some ways part of the, I mean, there's a lot to be said about what interests me about the connection between uh, meditation practice and Buddhism and psychedelics. And one thing that I think happens is, is that they sort of can feed each other in a, in a positive way. And one of the ways that psychedelics can feed meditation practice is that meditation practice, as we said, can be dry or mm -hmm. sad or lonely. And there's a way in which psychedelics, without ever landing on any kind of obvious idea or some specific meaning or some specific insight that isn't just transformed in the next moment, it nonetheless encourages a kind of uh, enchantment mm -hmm. with emptiness. So there's a sort of, uh, there's a juiciness that comes mm -hmm. into the picture. And, and so that was part of what I, what I wanted was a little bit of that, you know, a nice little tiny vial of that juice to bring into this, this space that is very much like the Dzogchen Zen mind. And, and I, and I also think it's helpful. I'll say one other thing and, you know, fascinated to hear your responses is that I also think that the imagination, you know, we've been talking about it here as a kind of like an aspect of the interior mental universe, you know, visions on psychedelics, or when you're a kid, you're imagining things. And we, we think about it as kind of a, an interior function, like a little movie theater we carry around with us. But it's also one of the ways in which we interface with the world outside, with, with the outside world. So, you know, when you're, when you're in nature and you're paying attention with your heart mind, not just your mind, there's an element of of like naturalism, like you're recognizing the pre precise elements of everything, but that's also happening inside of a imaginal relationship with an enchanted or uh, animate sense of the world outside. As usual, Eric, there's a, sh a lot there <laughs> to, <laughs> to respond to or to unpack and so many interesting things. I guess what I first want to just ask or kind of put out there is um, I maybe the, the preface is I think about practice, you know, let's say a meditation practice is both this kind of exploration and a sort of training and that the practice has the ability to kind of shift our state in the moment and offer insights and change things up. But it's also a training over time. It changes sort of your baseline levels of your capacity to focus and be open and get clear and these kinds of things. So I think when I think about psychedelics, psychedelics are so often thought of as these state changing experiences, which of course they dramatically do. But I wonder about, uh, I'm thinking about the more long-term training aspect of what a psychedelic does. If insofar as one can generalize, knowing that there are very many different they're, they're different medicines and they have different effects on different people. But when you spoke to that enchantment piece, for example, 
you know, uh, is that something that gets cultivated over time and repeat trips? You know, when I think about my own experience with psychedelics, there is definitely been a training in humility that stayed with me, a training in being less uh, attached to my categories and being more uh, a kind of anarchic absurdity that kind of on the edges of things. I wonder um, what you think about that, you know, as, as one way to start a kind of conversation about contrasting these different modes of practice, I suppose. Sure. That's a, that's a wonderful way of, of, of doing it. And, you know, and actually it's sort of the flip side of what I was saying. If I I was talking before about what psychedelics can bring to a meditation practice or someone who's really centrally devoted to that kind of practice and and it works the other way it, what what does medi- what what does the idea of practice as we develop in a kind of meditative or yoga perspective that sort of notion of practice as a training that's also a refining of a sensibility and an opening to uh, different domains of consciousness in an iterative way over time what does that bring to psychedelic experience, which just on its own can be like, oh, here I go. And then you're in this whole crazy ride and you come back and you go, what was that all about? And I guess it was fun or I don't know, you know, uh, it, it is that it brings an element of rigor to all phases of it, to mm-hmm. my mind. And so this, this includes, you know, the initial preparation. This includes the, that amazing, strange period of time between ingestion and coming on, when do you start to come on? When do things start to shift? Who's shifting? Is that really there? Is that my mind? Is you know? And that whole space is very productive. And then you know, for most people, that's quickly overwritten with far more dramatic material of the trip itself. But I think part of psychedelic practice, at least in the sense that we're talking about is also paying equal attention to these sort of other moments as well as, of course, coming down, which is often a strange experience. It's kind of like a return to ordinary Maya that is both sort of a relief and a little bit imprisoning, uh, you know, a mixture of joy and kind of uh, sadness sometimes or loss. Mm-hmm. And that's a very interesting place to look at just as is before you get to the sort of, you know, a lot today in the psychedelic world, lots of people talk about integration and they mean different things by it. But even before you get to sort of like integration, like what do I do with this experience or now my memories of this experience, uh, there's almost a more, a more, f- uh, phenomenological attention to all these different aspects of it. But the one you talk about, I think, is is really important as well for people doing meditation. I think that, um, and, and what I mean is that sense of, of absurdity or confusion or not being able to hold on to it. I mean, I think the fact, one of the great things about psychedelics and people, this is not what you get from the psychedelic revival, you know, this is going to help you heal your pain and integrate trauma. And, you know, there's a lot of hype around psychedelics right now. And I like to say that I think one of the greatest things about psychedelics is is it can make you really, really fucking confused. And then, (laughs) and then you have to be in that confusion without being able to reach for familiar Markings, or if you do reach for f- familiar things, you understand more why they're so 
pure and powerful. I, I remember one very harrowing experience I had where the only thing that felt like it was keeping me from spiraling into some really dark, crazy, you know, chaotic material, unconscious material, if you want to think about it that way, was to just return my attention to the sensation of that, of the moment. So it was like, it was like desperate mindfulness. And yet in that, in that work, I understood something about mindfulness that I will never forget, that it is a, an arrow in my quiver, as well as being a sort of gentle encouragement to, you know, stay awake to what's going on. It's something, it's also a really powerful, you know, uh, like a, like a, a Vajra or something, you know, like it's mm-hmm. something to pull out in a, in a difficult situation. So, um, I think that that's also an element of, of the kinds of practice that, that is, that is helpful for meditators, because I think this is another thing that, and I, that I would say this is true for me of many years, mostly kind of finding my own way, but also encountering really important teachers at various steps and uh, along the way, um, is that I think there's too much of an emphasis on, on method, uh, in the sense that at a point when people should start loosening their grip on method they they keep they keep refining the method Mm -hmm. and it becomes a comfort zone it becomes a comfort zone that's famous Mm -hmm. right to be like regardless of whatever the method is there it is like the one who is up employing the method yet again against some (laughs) drift or confusion or whatever the thing is and there's a kind of uh, in the Don Juan books, um, Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda books, Don Juan talks about one of the enemies of the warrior, the man, quote unquote, of knowledge. And one of these enemies, you know, one is fear, but one of them is clarity. And I think that there's a there's a trap of a kind of mixture of clarity and method inside practice that prevents people from being able to be in your sitting, in your ordinary daily sitting or whatever you're doing, be like, I really don't know where I am right now. I don't know who I am. I don't know what's inside and what's out. And I think those things are often available. And, you know, if you're starting out, no, you need your method. You need to build training wheels. You need to build up patterns. You need to, you know, train the mind. But at a certain point, you got to let let it go at least some of the time and just be with what arises in a in an uncontrolled way, even though you know you're not rolling around on the floor. But and and to me, that's that's also part of what I was trying to point to with this meditation was was to be open and not knowing, to be clear in that mind frame, but also be sort of willing to go through whatever arises without just sort of holding on a little too tightly to your yeah. clarity. Something this is reminding me of, actually, the parallel is kind of perfect, that in the, you know, the Tibetan tradition and the Mahayana tradition, there's the coupling of method and wisdom, right? And so you have like the Vipassana, which is the digging deep and and using your logic and using all of your senses to dig deep into what's going on, and then using the shamatha to kind of sustain whatever crazy experience you're having, you know, whether that's an experience of emptiness or fear of death or whatever it is. 
And that's, it just strikes me right now. That's exactly what we're talking about is that, you know, you can, you can have your daily practice, which is a sharpening of the shamatha, you know, sharpening kind of, of your ability to stay. And then the psych of concentration. Yeah. And then the psychedelics is, well, here's, here's the fear. Like you never felt it before. Here's the, you know, that, that feeling of being pulled apart into nothingness or whatever your worst fear is, or your greatest happiness is. And then just being able to stay because of your practice. Whereas if you didn't have that practice, maybe you would run elsewhere. Yeah, and exactly. I was just thinking of actually, I think Jeff, I think I told you this experience, but it was a, uh, one of my, um, salvia trips and it was, you know, salvia kind of comes on very, very strongly in the first like two minutes. And my experience was of this burning wheel. It was this massive wooden structure that was just like on fire and it was rolling towards me. And I was just like, there's no way away from this thing. And I was just like, I've never felt fear like that in my entire life. And I just had this one tendril that was like holding me to this practice that, you know, my meditation practice. And I was like, just stick with it. And I just, you know, had this experience of my entire body burning and my entire being burning and coming out the other side, like, like a phoenix, like just coming out, like totally reborn. But I just remember thinking if I didn't have that one little thread, that would have been the worst trip of my life. <laughs> so, yeah. I often think of the experience of very intense psychedelics as being a kind of, if you have the proper perspective, a kind of win-win situation. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, it's a quote win if you can stay perfectly equanimous and open as it gets more and more and more intense. There's, it's almost like the sense of the purification, or I mean, this is yeah. using a bit of kind of Buddhist language, but the sense in which the boiling off happens faster and faster and faster, the more present and perfectly empty you're able to be, the more of an upload it seems like you're getting or yeah. a download or whatever your metaphor. So there's in a sense that that's very, that's quote, a positive thing. Mm -hmm. But then there's always this moment when you reach the limit, when you're all of a sudden overwhelmed, it's just more than you can handle. Mm -hmm. And then, and you know, then you're, whatever you're like shut down or yeah. <laughs> you just you completely lose it you get like i mean all those things yeah. that's your freak out but it's but that's also a quote win in the sense that it's so humbling because yeah. all of a sudden now you realize that there you were sitting there like an idiot yeah. trying to do your equanimous look at me i'm gonna i'm gonna let this reality update through me yeah. you're just so about yourself in that moment and then you just got squashed and it's just, and that, that, and all you want to do at that point, other than barf and all the other things, is just weep with gratitude. Like, thank you. Thank you for helping me get over myself, yeah. you know? And that's been the lingering sense of, of what I've, of, of the, the different, you know, my experiences over the years of using these kind of medicines, whatever you want to call them, is just that feeling of just like that raw sense of vulnerable. Uh, getting humble, your ass handed to you thank you getting your ass handed <laughs> to you and then you never after that you never were gonna yeah. think that you're someone that has got a, you know never at least in the quite the same way but i also you know i'll question whether that is a good methodology <laughs> for a life because it's you know i think in life you got to cycle through times of feeling like you know who you are like you're certain about things and like you're clear and that is really important to have those times and then to have to go into the period of the not knowing and that's why i like say a progress of insight map which which cycles you through that on the regular you know you're always going to be moving through these stages of being more clear open solid and then blown out and then having to restart again and then and i think that's a very healthy though both ends of that are healthy you know i wouldn't want to be stuck in either end so there's some thoughts mm.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I I never uh, claim that anybody should take psychedelics or that there aren't a myriad of of dangers on the path. You know, uh, psychological inflation is an enormous problem. Mm. Clearly, uh, as a culture, uh, a lot of people who who do psychedelics can be pretty deluded in in a lot of ways. You know. Um, mm. And so it's it's never anything that I that I put forward as some kind of you know uh, general invitation. Uh, it's just the case that for whatever reason, many people open that door, and a lot of folks keep opening the door. And uh, that's always the way I think about the psychedelic yeah. sangha. Is I say, look, did the Buddha do psychedelics? Well, eh, you know, maybe, probably, you know, there was probably, there was Daytura around, there was some cannabis around, whatever, you know, and whatever Soma was, we don't really know what it was, but we know that there there was, you know, Daytura's back, you know, it's likely that they were also doing that, which is pretty intense. So he was trying everything. So yeah, it's probably, but we don't know. So you can't really hang anything on that. And then I was like, is the Dharma psychedelic? And I'm like, well... Yes and no. I mean, there's, if you, you know, there are parts of psychedelic experiences that really have this kind of, you know, unity of, of, uh, of emptiness and form or a kind of diamond like display. And there's sort of qualities there. And, you know, there's certain sutras that are really flipped out. The, you know, flower garland sutra is extremely yeah. psychedelic <laughs> and how it's written and stuff. But again, you can't really say that. And, you know, it's just whatever. You got the fifth precept and that's a complicated thing. I don't want to get into it, but yeah. let's just say we don't really know. But it's like, is there a psychedelic sangha? And there's, well, like, yeah, yeah, there is. So that's where I kind of put the connection between psychedelics and Buddhism is that there are just these people and there have been these people in the West for generations, for, you know, decades and decades Mm -hmm. and decades, really kind of going back to, if you want, you know, like Aleister Crowley doing peyote and, you know, magical rites, you know, after studying Buddhism and, Mm -hmm. and yoga back in the, you know, the 19 teens and so it's just part of our heritage as Western Dharma practitioners and whether or not you're in that substream and whether or not that substream is heretical, I don't care. If it's heretical, I'm a heretic. If it's mm-hmm. not, if it's actually just part of the Western Dharma, which is actually more what I think it is, then let's talk about it and, and, let's, and let's just accept it and not confuse the two. They're not the same thing. I don't mm-hmm. think psychedelics should ever be reduced or completely integrated with religion or psychology or a spiritual practice or meditation or any of those things. I think it's its own, in many ways, its own current of tutelage and training and discovery and perhaps to sometimes delusion or, or a kind of trap or something you no longer need. There's traps in every practice, I think. Yeah. 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 You're speaking to exactly the question I wanted to ask you, which is about, in a sense, what kind of training is this? What kind of that stream of tutelage? You mentioned a few of the points and just a few of the things that you see. I wonder when you look around at long term psychedelic users who have managed to learn something through the process. I mean, I don't even want even that is kind of a loaded thing, but who you who you would look to as a model, I guess, or. Um, what is the wisdom of the poison path? 
you you mentioned a few things there, but um, that sense of the enchantment, the the humility, the sense of connectivity, and I wonder if you could just say something a little more about that. Sure, no, those are really good questions, and it's there are very pertinent ones too because there's this psychedelic revival, and there's many many mm-hmm. people from well-intentioned therapists to vulture-like corporate capitalists who really want to make psychedelics a medicine at a time when there's a tremendous mental health crisis. So we're looking at this question of like, what is, uh, what is development, self-development uh, or learning um, in a psychedelic environment? And, you know, one of the concerns I have is that I'm not, is that the kinds of experiences I've had and the kind of people I've been lucky to know don't, don't necessarily scale very well. So in a way, my answer is almost an anachronistic answer because the people that I learned from were people who were doing it in a criminalized situation, were people who were part of a whole culture of ecstatic hedonism and mind exploration that was as absurd as it was courageous and, you know, had to survive the excesses of all of that. And in, in in a way that a lot of people didn't survive or, or they got lost somewhere along the way and they either had to stop everything or whatever. And so the people that I knew who were older than me, you know, from the boomer generation were people who had already kind of had to learn how to keep on their toes to be able to surf the the wildness at, at, at that level. And I think that one of the key elements was actually a kind of connection between fellow travelers that was less about teacher student you know guru chela and more about a kind of um fraternity and sorority of of poison path walkers and to be frank the fact that these things were illegal and for most people particularly since most people i'm talking about were relatively privileged white uh that there was relatively little risk if you weren't making it your business of getting busted. And at the same time, it was literally countercultural. It was outside of the conventional reproduction of knowledge and authority and psychology and the subject, da, 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 da. And so that gave it a kind of heretical flair that, again, is already changing really drastically. So I'm not sure how these things are going to translate. And I think part of the issue right now is that everybody is trying to figure out how to scale up. Um, And I think in that way, it's not dissimilar from meditation because you're like, okay, well, scaling up means like coming up with a real simple mindfulness program that is attached mm-hmm. to very specific goals that they're that are going to feed the ego that wants to have more control over its life and that's how you get their foot you get people's foot in the door and then later on we'll be able to get them to zogchen and emptiness and all that other kind of stuff and it there's something kind of similar uh happening yeah. now i guess i want to say one other final thing is that i think that one of the best ways to encourage this kind of tutelage process in your own being is to look at the psychedelic experience and the relationship to the psychedelic as a learning environment. You are learning what it means for your nervous system to encounter these 
teachers. And if you want to think about mm-hmm. teacher in an, in an animist way, which I don't mind, salvia has a spirit. It's different than the mushroom spirit. It's different than the LSD spirit. I'm fine with that. But even if you that's too woo for you, that you just recognize that it is a teaching environment where there's an iterative process of unfolding, of mapping, of learning, of ch- new challenges, and that you're by the trusting that it is actually a learning experience is one of the ways that it becomes a learning experience. I was going to say that exactly how I've explained it to people. You know, I have some friends who would never touch psychedelics in their life and I have others who live by them. And when I'm having conversations with those that don't and they're like, you know, what is it? Why are you doing this? Like, you know, you seem like a pretty together person. Why do you got to go and get crazy high? And I've always said that it, it's it's like my nervous system is learning something. So it's like I'll go to that specific experience and it's like if a personal trainer was like, no, don't lift the weights this way. Try this way. It'll be easier. Or it'll be a different experience. So you're, you'll feel it in your hamstrings instead or something like that. You know, it's it's kind of that. And you leave the experience having understood something, you know, for example, like MDMA is, is you know, quite a um, empathogen. And I remember the first time I did it, I was like, I didn't realize I had the capacity to be so open hearted. And I left that experience just as if I had, you know, done 10 years of therapy or something. So it's that kind of takeaway. Yeah, so interesting, Tasha. Um, I mean, my thought is just that every experience is a potential teacher. There's mm-hmm. something to learn there. But not every practice is suitable in the long term for every nervous system. And this is the problem with anything that you try to scale up, whether it's mindfulness or meditation or psychedelics. There's going to be just for some people for whom it's not going to really agree with them yeah. over a long term. I mean, according to the val- their values, according to how they want to grow, according to what their definitions of not suffering are or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you kind of got to do the experiment and, and with these different practices and see what see how is kind of landing. And then you need to be your own teacher in like using your own discernment to see where there is value for you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and it's the same that that whole question of discernment is to me one of the great koans. It's like, what, mm-hmm. where does discernment come from? Mm-hmm. How do you, can you teach discernment? What does that mean? I mean, it's, it's actually mm-hmm. very, for being something that it's, you know, we think about all the, all the elements we've been talking about here, you know, consciousness and awareness and the super, you know, mythopoetic and all these different things in a way, discernment seems, you know, kind of, pretty here and now, you know, it's sort of like critical thinking or a certain kind of ability to objectify or to, you know, articulate what's happening. And yet in these realms in particular, there's such a wide variance of qualities of discernment. uh, And many people seem to almost want to bury their discernment because it, it implies a certain kind of individual responsibility that I think sometimes people find onerous. Um, and, and yet I often find myself at the end of the discussion about how important discernment is going, where does discernment come from? Is it, is it a, is it something we can inculcate? Is it, is it some people have it more than others? It's really unclear to me how to refine that. Isn't it the capacity to learn from experience? I mean, it's in a sense, Mm. one way to think about discernment is it's identical to wisdom. It's what it means to learn, to live, to learn from your life, which you've lived the path you're walking. Yeah, that's a really great way of saying it. In a way, it's the same attitude I was just saying towards psychedelics, towards your life, that you that there it is this training, iterative, 
um, constantly new material. There's patterns and cycles that you begin to recognize and articulate and bring them to the surface. And that shifts the, the ongoing flow of the thing. Uh, and, you know, bringing that attention to bear on it is such a, is such a great, it's such a great gift. Eric, you're a great gift, buddy. It's super fun to talk to you about this. Is there any last thing, Tasha, that you want to ask Eric or any last thing you're thinking you want to say, Eric? Just on a super practical level, like how can people get involved with the Psychedelic Sangha? Oh, yeah. It's it's a funny organization. It's, it's really just a couple of crews in different cities mm-hmm. who have mostly been doing, in, until COVID, uh, lo- like local events. So the main hub is in New York and they do integration oh. circles. Uh, and we're you know, sort of a mild... Uh, a presence online nowadays. My uh, psychedelic sangha once a month is is virtual, and you can go to the San Francisco Dharma Collective to see the schedule and sign up. And there's some other things there that are particularly awesome for uh, meditation practitioners. I would recommend Michael Taft's Death Sangha, which happens once a month. That's that pretty uh, awesome. That's pretty awesome. I have to get him on. And then the other thing to note is that uh, we're going to do a version of the clearing combining it with uh, some music and uh, visuals for an upcoming uh, psychedelic song, uh, you know, band camp release. And so cool. that'll be co- coming out in a you know month or so. Uh, and they're going to be doing like a series of these kind of like, kind of more e- edgier guided meditations, you know, that, like it's like, let's, let's have, uh, you know, psychedelic guitars rather than, you know, new age, uh, flutes. So that's <laughs> kind of the approach. So we'll see how that works. Nice. That sounds great. awesome. Well, super fun having you on. Really enjoyed this. Thank yeah, you very much. Great. Hopefully we can have you back on season two. We'll talk some more about it. Yeah. Look forward to it. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the Consciousness Explorers podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this episode, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. See you next week for a whole new adventure.